Hello fam, this is Ro and you're listening to Sick of Being Sick. Please follow, like, subscribe or do whatever it is that your app does to listen to our upcoming episodes. Hello, thank you so much for tuning in to episode three. Today we have with us the amazing Elle, who will be chatting us through her experience with breast cancer. She got diagnosed in March 2020 in New York City, right at the peak of the pandemic, with stage 1A breast cancer at the age of 31. And although today she has no evidence of the disease, um, just this September of this year, she went through her last reconstructive surgery. So she will talk to us all about, you know, her experience processing the diagnosis, as well as some tips that she has for some young adults um, that may be new to the best cancer world. Hello, Elle. I'm so excited to have you for sake of being sick. I'm kind of nervous because you're my first interviewee. I wanted to kick it off with the start of your story. And kind of just starting with your symptoms and how you first felt that there could be something growing there. Yeah, so I um, I was diagnosed with invasive ductal sarcoma, which is breast cancer, the most common form of breast cancer, in um, March 2020, like peak pandemic craziness times. And it had just so happened that I was working somewhere I was freelancing and they hired me full time. So I scheduled an appointment to make a physical with my primary care physician that I had been seeing for years. And prior to this, um, maybe like three or four months before this, I felt I was getting out of the shower and I kind of just like felt myself and I felt like a hard layer in my breast. I wouldn't even call it like a lump because you think like a lump is circular, but it was more just like a layer to my breast. And I don't know, I immediately had a feeling of dread. Like, you know, that feeling when you leave the house and you realize like, oh, you like left your phone at home or something and you just get that, oh, that feeling. I got that feeling in that very moment. And it's strange because I I didn't frequently do breast exams, to be honest with you. I always had really sensitive breasts and I just didn't like the feeling of like me touching them or anyone else touching them. So, um, you know, I just kind of like sat with that feeling and with that little worry in the back of my head for like several months until I had better health insurance um, to you know, make an appointment and ask about it. So, and also a few times after I felt it myself, um, you know, one time in particular, my dog had laid his head on my chest and I felt like a sharp pain. And another time someone that I was dating, like touched my chest and I felt a sharp pain that made me like gasp a little bit. So I just knew that something wasn't right, but it's weird. Like my mind tried to trick itself into believing like, oh, you know, it's probably just like, that's how your breast is. Like, that's how it feels. Or maybe it's hormonal from like, you know, my menstrual cycle or something like that. Because, you know, at the age of 31, I was not expecting to get diagnosed with breast cancer at all. So, um, you know, when I saw my doctor, 
I just, you know, casually mentioned, oh, by the way, I felt something here. Um, and she was like, okay, she felt it. And she's like, I kind of feel something, but she didn't really seem too concerned. She referred me to get a mammogram and a sonogram like that same week. And um, from there, you know, it just like snowballed and I was diagnosed um, and it was a complete shock because I, it was just a complete shock because I was diagnosed so quickly. Um, And I'm definitely realizing now that that's actually like, you know, in some form of form of privilege that I was able to, you know, be taken seriously by my doctors right away. Um, And I'm learning more about that and, you know, about the breast cancer community and the experiences that they face, um, you know, being diagnosed. So it's been crazy. It's actually so interesting to hear you talk about the whole insurance component of it. Um, I'm so lucky I'm going through this in Europe and in Spain, but I can only imagine, you know, being diagnosed and hearing the C word as you're sitting with your doctor and having to worry on top of that about money like that is terrifying Um, yes and I just feel so grateful that I have um the Spain you know system to rely on absolutely yeah it's um the only reason that I was diagnosed is because I made that appointment to get a physical. But what's scariest about the whole situation is that I could have easily ignored the the little bit of hardness in my left breast for a very long time. Um, If I was continuing to freelance, then I could have just never made my appointment and just continued on like that. So I think that's um, what's really scary because early detection is so important with breast cancer. Um, And, you know, I was scared because I had friends tell me, oh, mammograms are like really, really painful. And I even considered like canceling the mammogram because in my mind, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm just like overdoing it. Maybe it's just health anxiety. I'm sure it's nothing. I'm too young. You know, I don't want to go through like a painful mammogram for no reason. And but, you know, luckily I stuck with the appointment and I just kept the ball rolling. But um I was also diagnosed in a really peculiar way because, you know, you have your mammogram and your sonogram. And then after the sonogram, the sonogram tech kind of like lingered in the room. And he, as he was leaving the room, he was like, I'm sorry. And I was like, that's kind of a weird comment. But again, I was like, okay. And they referred me to get a biopsy of the breast, which was actually like a really painful and traumatizing experience. The lidocaine didn't work for me. So I felt you know, the biopsy of the breast and the biopsy of my lymph nodes, which were um, enlarged at the time. Like I felt the whole process and I was told that I wouldn't receive the biopsy results for about three days. So I was expecting, you know, do this biopsy, leave, get the result in a few days. And after the biopsy, you know, I'm sitting there in pain, icing my breast. Um, I wasn't given any pain medication or anything. And it was like a a pretty severe throbbing pain. And um, the doctor who did the biopsy, she said, hey, why don't you just stick around? Um, there's There's an oncologist here today that I want 
you to meet with. You know, she doesn't usually have open appointments and she happens to have some time today. So I, I just think you should meet her. But in my mind, I didn't really think anything of that. I just thought, okay, like I'm here just in case she wants me to meet her. No one said we think it's cancer or anything like that. Um, I was expecting it to just to be a fibroadenoma and just go on with my life. So I, I sat in the waiting room for like hours in pain, um, just kind of just like wondering, should I leave? Do I need to stick around here? What am I sticking around for? And then when I was finally called into the surgical oncologist's room, she, the first thing she says is, so you know you're here because we think you have cancer, right? And my heart just like dropped because it was just such a strange way to get diagnosed and like not really a gentle way to get diagnosed. And then she showed me the pictures um, from the biopsy. And I, I had done like a lot of reading about breast cancer at this point. So I could see like there was like a a star kind of formation in the tumor. And I, I just felt like a complete sinking feeling. And then from there, they give you all the information that you need to know about breast cancer in general, just like sitting there. But I was so stunned and so in shock and I didn't have anything to write any of this down. And it just was like going in one year and out the other because I'm sitting there trying to process the fact that I have cancer without the biopsy result even coming back. They were like, we don't even need to see the biopsy result to tell you. So from there, I like stepped outside. I called my mom and I think my mom was like, even in a little bit of denial being like, well, just don't tell anyone until you get the biopsy result back. Maybe they're wrong. And it was just such a strange, strange experience. It literally sounds terrifying just listening to you, <laughs> but I can relate to a lot of it, actually. Um, I feel like a lot of the mental sort of processes that you had at first when you first felt it and you were trying to kind of push it down because we're always told to kind of think that it's something else. Um, I, you know, thought all my everything that was happening to me was mental health related <laughs> and that I was going crazy and that I had panic attacks because I had the reasons to have them. Um, I feel like we live in this culture of don't go to the doctor unless you're dying sort of thing. And it really is so important to get all these things checked more often um, to make sure that, you know, you get diagnosed um, ahead of time. Also, just really not tactful for them to <laughs> say that to you that way. Um, apparently for me, as I read my um, sort of the the forms that they give you when you leave the hospital, where the ho the doctors write everything down, I also got diagnosed in a really strange way because I first went to the emergency room. I had surgery and removal before even being diagnosed, which was in itself the biopsy. Um, and they had already written in the form that they thought it was a glioma. They just never told me. They were, you know, trying to figure out if it was an infection or a benign tumor. And um, when I left the hospital, the doctor told me, I already set up your oncology dates. Um, just so we can get ahead of schedule. It's if it's if we don't need them, we'll cancel them. And in my head, I was like, we're not gonna need them. Like, I feel great now. What the heck? Like, this is not it's not it, you know? It's that little bit of denial that we feel at first, I feel. Um, and then I say, I told my family, we're like, let's just not get ahead of ourselves, you know. We have to wait until by up to date and then everything will come. Um, so it's super interesting that, you know, super different stories, but there is always a little bit of alignment um, between. And 
Alongside this, I know you mentioned that you, you know, were diagnosed during the pandemic. Were you able to have your family with you in the hospital while you were doing all this or you had to go through it alone? No. And I think that's the craziest thing about being diagnosed in the pandemic is that I had to do every single appointment, every single surgery, be diagnosed, everything alone, you know. And this was like peak pandemic in New York City. So it was just a strange vibe in general, like, you know, having to go in and out of the city like nearly every day. You know how it is in the beginning when I heard you and your podcast talking about like appointment after appointment after appointment. And that's how it really is um, for months. And, you know, I was like Ubering in and out of the city from New Jersey because I just like was too scared to take the subway. Like it was just a crazy time here. Um, and you know, going through it, there's pros and cons. It's funny because in, on one hand, you know, everyone was stuck at home doing nothing. So I didn't have any like FOMO of like, oh, I'm missing out on like, you know, a year of my life and everyone else is living their lives. <laughs> so I had that. But on the other hand, you know, it's very lonely and it's very scary. And um, I couldn't like hug my family or my friends. I couldn't be near anyone because that's, you know, the time when you were you know, not vaccinated yet. And it was just, um, you know, going into a hospital every day where people are dying of COVID in and of itself was terrifying, you know. Um, but I do feel like I know this is a cliche, but it like made me a much stronger person. I was already a really independent person. Like I live alone and everything. But, um, you know, I think having to go through it in the pandemic um, just makes me feel like really tough. Like I can, I can handle anything that's thrown at me. And, um, so I'm really proud of that part of it. I feel like you should be proud of that because putting myself in your shoes, I don't know if I could have done it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's survival, isn't it? So like we, we all figure it out, but it is, I felt like my support system was what I needed the most whilst all of this was happening. Um, and I was, Technically also diagnosed during a pandemic, but at the tail end, um, being this summer and people already being vaccinated, I wasn't vaccinated myself. So I also didn't know, you know, am I going to be able to be vaccinated now that I'm going into treatment and all those things? Um, so there's always the fear that with this sort of disease and the treatments, your uh, immune system goes down. And on top of this, being around the pandemic, you're terrified of going anywhere because you can catch anything anytime. So that is just so terrifying in itself, but it's so amazing that you were able to do it on your own um, and even get the silver lining out of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, terrifying. it's funny. You know how people are like, oh, you're so strong. I could never. But like you, when you're in the situation, you really don't have a choice and you just like pull your inner strength. And like, even looking at you, like I, to, to think about going under for my brain would be like a hundred times more terrifying than my breast surgery, just to me. So the fact that you were even able to go through with that and not completely melt down, like that is such a showing of strength, you know? Um, I definitely melt down. Terrifying. I cried, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I cried so much. Me too. I cried. There's a lot of crying. Me but too. You know, one thing that kept happening to me at the hospital, and I don't know if it happened to you, but I just... 
anywhere they moved me, I would just cry and cry again and cry again. And the nurses kept telling me, don't cry, don't cry. And I'm like, let me cry. Like, we have to cry. Like, don't let people tell you you shouldn't be crying at this time because you have to cry. If your body wants to cry and be angry for a day, you're so allowed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let it out. I completely agree. And that's another thing, like, I actually wanted to talk about with you because, you know, there's this whole culture of like toxic positivity where people, and it's a coping mechanism for people, but in order for them to um, process the fact that you have cancer, they will try to like, you know, force you like stay positive, be positive all the time. And like, that's just not realistic. I'm a huge believer in like feeling your feelings, crying things out. I really believe like it helps. And in the beginning, my, my biggest emotion was like anger. Like I had a lot of rage in the very beginning and, um, you know, it's not helpful to tell someone like, oh, be grateful, be positive. It's like, it's okay to be angry that this happened to us because it's not fair that it's happening. And once we process that, we can release that anger. And, um, you know, I started thinking of it as like, it's not happening to me. It's happening for me. You know, I can handle this level of trauma. I can handle this level of pain. I'm built for it and I can do this, but I had to like feel that sadness and feel that anger first, you know? Um, so I really encourage anyone that's diagnosed with any illness, like, you know, allow yourself to feel your feelings and don't be ashamed of yourself. If someone tells you like you're being too negative or because unless you're like, in that specific situation, you'll never understand. And it's funny because like my friends who are cancer survivors and we're going through cancer at the same time as me are like the absolute last people, even that would ever like correct me or tell me that I'm doing things, I'm feeling things incorrectly or I'm doing things wrong. Because even though some of their experiences are like way worse than mine, way harder than mine, um, you know, especially some of their chemo experiences, like they, if you are in this unfortunate club, you just get it. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think like going into that again, I think I mentioned this in um, episode two, but because their experiences might be tougher than yours, doesn't mean that yours is any less, you know, it's your experience and you should be, you know, there's always going to be someone out there that's having a worse disease than the one that you have. Um, but it shouldn't, you know, compare or put yourself in, in a comparative way to, to what you're going through. Um, with me for surgery, for example, because my whole tumor was removed, people kept saying, you know, like, but the whole tumor is removed. And I'm like, yeah, but like, it's a fourth grade glioma. Like it's still, it can still spread. If it makes you feel better to tell me that the whole tumor is removed, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it doesn't mean that it's over and there's still a chance and you know, it's still terrifying. So I think that that is something that everybody should, you know, keep in mind if they're going through something, there's any sort of trauma, stop comparing yourself to others and live your own. And I really love the mindset that you said of trying to say, you know, like this is not happening to me, it's happening for me. Because at the start of all of this, I cannot tell you the amount of hours and energy I've spent crying about the why. Mm-hmm. Why me? Why yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why me? You know, I, what have I done? Why, yes. why me? And is that, you know, I can take it. And I love how you said it. It's like, maybe it's given to me because I can take it. Outside of sort of the pandemic side of things, um, and obviously the moment that you're told, what was the scariest or hardest moment of the whole process for you? 
That's a good question. There's a lot of scary moments, but I think, um, you know, early on in my diagnosis, before I really knew the details, um, I was really terrified just because I already have some medical trauma from my father dying of cancer in 2016. Um, like he was diagnosed and he actually died six days later. So it was like really sudden and, um, really aggressive form of cancer. And, you know, I watched him die for those six days. I was with him for his death and it was just a really horrific, um, nightmarish, ugly way to go. It was not calm, peaceful in bed, you know, with your family around. It was a lot of suffering. And, you know, in my early moments, I just remember thinking, oh my God, that's now I'm going to go through that myself. Now that's going to happen to me, you know? And, um, you know, that was just really terrifying and, and not having him with me to support me through the experience when he was my best friend was also really hard. Um, and I think through the experience, you know, I've always had on and off issues with like mental health, depression from a very young age. And I feel like it really spiked during like active treatment. Um, you know, I had moments that were really scary. Um, just basically I had issues with, I started having nightmares about, now this is where it's going to get a little weird. So I don't want to weird you out, but I'm trying to be completely transparent about how crazy this experience is. Cause you know, breast cancer, it's not, you know, a breast surgery. It's an amputation, you know? And, um, I started having these nightmares that my fingers were being either cut off or bitten off like every night. And then those nightmares started bleeding into my daily waking life. I was still working full time during treatment and it was just a lot. And throughout the day, I would have like these visions of like my hands or my fingers bleeding, or I would like feel pain, actual physical pain in my hands, or I would look down and like be, I didn't realize I'd be like clenching my hands like this. And it just got to the point where I was like, wow, am I fully going like mentally <laughs> insane? Like, am I completely losing it? Um, but I think, you know, I found ways to like cope and deal with it and process it through therapy with professionals that helped me understand that it's actually very normal to have like an episode like that where you're, um, it's the brain's way of like processing such intense trauma. I was so scared about, you know, amputating two parts of my body. So I was dreaming and visioning other parts of my body being amputated. And yeah, that was really scary. Cause I was like, okay, I'm completely lost it. Um, but it, it, um, it got better, you know, over time. And, um, yeah, I think that was like probably another, the scariest part. Another scary thing was, this is going to sound ridiculous, but like my whole life, I've always kind of like prioritized the way that I look. And I remember like the day after being diagnosed, sitting in my neighbor's apartment and like sobbing and being like, I don't want to die. I don't want to be ugly. <laughs> like I, um, you know, and I would warn people like, don't live your life 
putting, making that the most important thing about yourself, because if something like cancer happens to you, it's, it really throws you when you're like, oh my God, my identity is being attractive or whatever. And then you feel completely unattractive and it's, it can really mess with you. I just don't think it's a healthy like outlook. And I'm realizing that now, but on the other hand, I also like, you know, I wanted to prove in some way that like you can still be sexy and sexual and beautiful during treatment or after treatment. Like I feel like now I look better than I ever have, you know, and I'm really happy. And there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, I have friends that have said, you know, losing my hair and losing my eyebrows was actually the worst part of the whole process because like, I felt like I was losing my identity and like, you know, I just felt so bad about myself when I looked in the mirror and things like that. And I'm just, I wanted to like show people like you could still be a baddie even with cancer. I know it sounds ridiculous. This is the least important thing, but, um, you know, I didn't want to like lose that part of myself. So yeah, those were like the scary, scary things. (laughs) I can literally relate to every single point of those. I'm going to try and like go back to the, because everything you said was so powerful, but starting with the nightmares, Mm -hmm. um, I also, I mean, (laughs) I got a tumor removed from my brain. So I just kept being obsessed with the fact that there was a gap in my brain, um, which there was, you know, if you see the scans, there was some mass there that's not there anymore. So my brain had to kind of reconfigure itself and put itself back together. If a doctor heard me speaking right now, they'd probably be like, what the heck is she saying? But (laughs) Um, and every time, you know, my mask was on my right side and every time I laid in my bed, like on the right, I felt like inside something was falling. Yep. And I I kept feeling like a feeling of emptiness on the right side of my face. Um, and when I went to my surgeon to remove my stitches, I explained that to him and he's like, don't worry, we didn't remove enough for you to feel that, but (laughs) it's a fair feeling. So, you know, at least know that it's not something actually happening is just something that you're processing which makes sense but isn't that what's crazy though is like you will physically feel it like I felt pain in my fingers and I'm sure you felt you know your brain moving around (laughs) yeah missing piece and it's it's crazy yeah you you really feel it um but I'm glad that he didn't like discount you and tell you that it was just nuts you know best surgeon he was like so empathetic I've had I've been met with so much empathy and I said that in the podcast episode before, but I'm so grateful for that because it's so necessary um, when you're going through this, but then also with the nightmares. So for a few nights in a row, I dreamt and I kept dreaming that I had um, a whole bunch of doctors around me in a hospital bed and they all just looked at me and shake their head. You know, when a doctor knows that there's something wrong and they're looking at you being like, Oh fuck, like this is not good. I don't know how to tell this person. (laughs) So just constantly happening that every single night. So I totally understand, you know, the nightmares are part of the process, but it's terrifying. I'm now having, we'll talk about dogs in a minute, but I'm now, I have had countless nightmares that my dog, the puppy that I've gotten dies. Oh my God. (laughs) And that they take it away from me. (laughs) And it's terrifying, but it's, it's just, you know, this is not only, Coping with cancer is not only coping with the diagnosis, being part of the treatment, it's the amount of 
trauma and yes. anxiety that comes with it. The um, You know, for me going outside, I don't know if this happened to you, but now going outside and being social, the amount of social anxiety I get just from like being around people and, you know, you have to explain yourself and then you have to tell, you, you don't have to, but like they will ask and they will want to know or they're looking. Um, it's, it's really intense. So there's just so many other components to this process than just the physical side of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is crazy. And then to the physical side of it, as well as you were saying, like I, when I got told I was going to do chemo, I just, I was most upset about losing my eyebrows. I don't even have nice eyebrows. (laughs) I I think your eyebrows are really nice. I love your eyebrows. (laughs) Thank you. I just kept crying because I was like, my eyebrows, like, you know, it's just going to look, my face is going to look so empty. And like, now here I am sitting with like half a head bolt. It's just, you know, it really, it gets to the point that you have to love yourself and like not care, but also care. Like I feel sexy bold like this, you know, and you got to own it and make sure that you're putting that message out as you were saying, so that if someone's struggling on the other end, they can, you know, some feel at least feel like there's somebody there to yeah. protect them or back them up or feel like they can relate to. Yeah. And I mean, I had like, when I had my ex- chest expanders in before I had implants, like it's basically like melted Tupperware. It's like, like a square. It's not even like a circular breast shape. It's like a heart. It looks like an alien's coming out of your chest and it's ridiculous. And like, I would, I went out, you know, I wore like little crop tops, no bra, nothing. And I was just like, this is who I am. This is what I'm going through. I'm proud of myself for going through this. Like, I still feel pretty. I still feel attractive, you know? Um, and I just kind of like owned it. And I, Mm -hmm. I really like, you know, encourage that. You know, because I think I personally, you know, I know this isn't helpful to you, but it's like, I personally think you look amazing with your head shaved. And it's like, um, you know, being able to own that and be confident in that is like everything, you know? Yeah. And there's days that I'm not confident, you know, it is also the reality of that. But I think being able to do both. For me, it's almost been, and I'm going to do an episode on this, just sort of like body, mind, and head. Because <laughs> especially for me, head is quite a big thing. <laughs> I have a huge scar now. But um, it's been a coping mechanism. I feel like the day that my hair started falling and I looked at my hand and I just had like, you know, hundreds of hairs in my hand, I freaked out and I was terrified. But I think the moment I started, you know, making TikToks and laughing about it and kind of normalizing it, that's when I started to you know, process it and accept it, Yeah, I think. So did, will your hair grow over the scar? Not over the scar, but so the, the sections that you can see now um, that have the least hair is because of radiation. So that will grow is just radiation kills a lot of the cells there. Um, hopefully, so it doesn't come back again. <laughs> but um, it takes like three months for it to grow back. Cool. So I guess speaking about coping mechanisms and also just normalizing these things as coping mechanisms, what have been some of the most helpful mechanisms for you to process this? Well, I'm not the best person to ask because I don't have the healthiest coping mechanisms. I'm like everyone who knows me knows I'm like super emotional and like I take, I took the experience of cancer like really hard. Um, But uh, I will say the first one that I utilized was, um, you know, I asked my cancer center if they had any like therapists or social workers um, who deal specifically with cancer patients. And I was referred to a woman named Lisa Savanik, and she was like, 
this super intellectual, logical person. So it wasn't like talk therapy, but like I could call her. And I mean, I've left her so many sobbing voicemails. Because all of a sudden, you know, I'm responsible for researching this entire disease. I'm responsible for making like life or death, literally, choices for myself. And I have no idea what I'm doing. And there was just a lot of, you know, hesitation and uncertainty. And I could call her for logical advice and walking me through the thought process of like making a decision for myself. Um, And she was just absolutely incredible, always there for me to talk on the phone for like an hour or two if I really needed like help with something. And I really encourage people to like, you know, lean on resources that you can find, like lean on if your cancer center does have like a licensed clinical social worker or, um, you know, I think it's cancer care does like some therapy sessions and, you know, there's message boards online. And that's actually another thing, um, another coping mechanism that has really helped me. And we talked a little bit about this, but like social media as much as like horrible as Instagram and everything is. And I'm always like, I want to delete it. Um, it helped me through this experience so much. And I know like TikTok has helped you a lot. Um, But for me, like I, you know, it's very isolating going through this experience, especially at the age of 31, because I don't know anyone. I didn't know anyone personally my age that was going through the crazy decisions and things that we were experiencing, you know. And so I started just like making a lot of like online friends um, via like there's some Facebook groups that I was in um, via the Breasties, which is like a breast cancer organization um, that connects women and just like a few other places. And now I have like this circle of like I consider them some of like my closest friends. Um, We do brunches and dinners and drinks together and we hang out and like there's so much to talk about. Like we literally talk for hours about this experience and surgeries and doctors and just like having that helped me through this experience to having people that I felt like I could relate to and I could lean on who like completely understood what I was going through and what I was feeling and um, like the complexities of everything that just helped me so much. And then my dog too, you know, like he's literally like an emotional support animal at this point. He's gotten me through like my dad's death and the end of a relationship and now cancer. Like I leaned heavily on him. Like there were nights that, you know, after my double mastectomy, when I was in so much pain and I would just like lay with like my head on him and he like would like take my pain away from me. We have like this crazy bond with each other and, um, you know, like their love is unconditional and he he was just there every single step of the way because like I couldn't be around people. Um, so yeah, those were like the three things. I kind of want to go back to the overall uh, chat that you mentioned about having sort of the support system within the same group of cancer. Did you find yourself, um, maybe this is me projecting because this is something I've been doing, but do you find yourself trying to find, people who have the exact same case as you so that you can feel like you can see what's going to happen to your future um, prognosis or not? 
That's a really good question because in the beginning when I had joined the cancer groups, I just joined like the general groups and the general message boards. And I, you know, I have really bad anxiety just in general. And when I would see posts about like women that were stage four and women that were dying, like it was really triggering me. And actually Lisa, the social worker I mentioned, she, um, was like, do not just join like early stage. She was like, just join early stage cancer groups. Do not join groups for like stage four. There's, there's separate groups for them. Um, and it's just because she knew that it was like triggering my anxiety so bad. So, you know, the people that I'm friends with, like we've all gone through, all of our journeys are completely different. Like your journey and my journey are completely different. You know, um, I feel like in the grand scheme of things, like, I've been pretty fortunate because I was able to avoid like IV and port chemo. I, you know, kept my hair, obviously. I um, was able to do a round of egg freezing prior to, you know, this experience. Um, There's just a lot of things that like ended up working out in my favor. Um, One of them was like the Oncotype score, which is what doctors here use to decide if you need chemo or not. And I like literally started praying that it would be a low number and it ended up being a low number. So I've been so fortunate throughout the process. And I have friends who like haven't been as fortunate and have gone through like hell, um, you know, chemo, like has hospitalized them, really bad fevers and just feeling awful. So, um, you know, we lean on each other and we're there for each other. And we actually find it really interesting um, that we're all in different stages of you know, treatment or post-treatment, um, because we like really rely on each other for like advice and information. So, um, you know, a lot of the women that I hang out with and the women that I talk to are, you know, around my age. Um, you know, we have like similar interests, you know, live in the New York city area. And, um, so I, I just find that it really helps. Yeah. Have you made like a, community for yourself, like in the brain cancer area? Yeah, I think like with brain cancer, it's it's a bit harder just because it's not as common. Um, and especially at my age, well, actually the gliomas are quite normal in young adults, which is so sad. Um, but I did. The thing for me is that it's been hard because I had just moved back from the US. So after being in New York for eight years, in the US total, like 11 years, because I did part of high school there as well. So it was almost like shifting my life completely from my social circle, not being here either. Like all my friends, I have a few friends left in Spain, of course, but most of my friends being in New York or other parts of the world. And um, that's why I went to TikTok and why I'm doing this podcast, which is strange. I'm doing it in English because I am in Spain. but But through TikTok, a few people have reached out, both from the general sort of cancer community. And then there was this one girl who is um, at, about to end the same treatment I'm doing, which has been so amazing because she's, you know, helping me with guidance on the things that can happen, the things that cannot happen in terms of like secondary effects or like how her body has affected it or things like that. Um, but yet I am a fourth grade glioma. She's a third grade glioma. So it's 
I'm constantly trying to be like, okay, is there a fourth grade glioma person out there that's like, come out on the other side? Like, I need to know. <laughs> I hope you can find someone. Maybe by putting this podcast out, yeah. we'll find. I just, I, that's why I'm going to, I'm going to keep saying this in the episodes. <laughs> yeah. If there's someone out there in remission yeah. who's gone through fourth grade glioma, please reach out. Because <laughs> um, it just, it also gives you hope when you're yes. like, oh, okay, like you're yes. doing really well. Your, your cancer, your tumors haven't come back. Like, exactly. so it's totally necessary. Exactly. Kind of just going into the last few questions, a bit more, you know, epiphanies out of this whole experience. Um, What has been the biggest lesson for you so far? And what is something that you've learned about yourself? So there's been so many lessons. And I think the craziest thing about the experience is that it really did make me into a better person, but I still wish that it never happened, which is like really unusual. (laughs) Um, I think, um, you know, one of the biggest lessons is like, I always thought like I could do everything by myself, you know, like living alone, going through like the day to day alone. But in reality, like there are times when you need to lean on your tribe. And, you know, my mother and I had, had not spoken in about one or two years before I got diagnosed and we reconnected when I was diagnosed. Um, and she has been like, a huge source of support for me, especially after my bilateral mastectomy. Um, so I think like the importance of family is a huge lesson that I learned. And also like humility, um, you know, like we said, it's really, 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 really expensive to have cancer in the United States. And even though I was working and I make a decent salary, like I would have completely gone bankrupt if I hadn't received help from family and friends. Um, I had like a supportful, which is kind of like a GoFundMe um, in the beginning. And, you know, especially with, you know, the costs of like Ubering in and out of the city because it was like pandemic times and I was working and just like everything. It's like, it's not just, you know, the medical bills. It's like everything else on top of that, that costs so much, you know, like having to get like, someone to come walk my dog for me because I was like in pain or I was at an appointment, things like that. It just like adds up. And my, and at first, you know, before I started, you know, the supportful, I was just like, I don't know, you know, is it like begging for money? Like I just felt really uncomfortable. I don't like to ask for anything. I always consider myself like super financially independent and I like doing everything on my own. And I just like had so many qualms with it. And I even like had people tell me like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Like it's tacky, whatever. But I was just like, fuck it. Like I really need help, you know? And there's times that you like really need help. And then when my friends or my family need help, like I'll, I, they can lean on me, you know, but, um, you know, this was my time to like really focus on myself. And I'm so glad that I did that because I had friends raise me like $10,000 and that helped me completely enormously. Like that took so much added stress off my shoulders so I could focus on healing. I could focus on, you know, making the best decisions for myself without the stress of like, the added financial stress. And of course, like, you know, that was like one year of treatment. And then, you know, going forward, I still see the doctor a lot. I just had another surgery and like, it's continues to be very, very expensive process. (laughs) So, um, but that helps me get over like the, the initial like 
whoa, oh my God, my bank account's being completely drained and I don't know what to do and I need to take time off. And, you know, um, so that really helps. So I think just like being humble, accepting help, um, leaning on people. And um, yeah, those were like the biggest lessons. What were the biggest lessons you've learned? I mean, I'm still so early in the process. <laughs> um, I think I've got a lot to learn still, but I, I relate to you too. I actually hadn't spoken to my dad much in like one to two years until diagnosis. So that's, and now I live with him in Madrid and he's been like one of my strongest support systems throughout this alongside my sister and I also weren't super close and she's been literally, she, she's been my right hand woman and has helped me throughout all this. And I think part of the family component too, like I was always super independent. I went to boarding school since I was 13. I've always been like living all over the world. And I never I knew like, that. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was the type of person who was like, I don't need anybody. I got myself type of thing. And then this made me realize that that's not true and that you have to allow yourself be taken care of when you need it and ask for help yeah. when you need it and get over your ego <laughs> when you have to. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, the ego. Yeah. And then I think the money thing, even like I left my job to go have a hot girl summer and ended up having cancer. So now I'm jobless with cancer, <laughs> which is great. Um, but even the money thing, like in although Spain, of course, they cover so much more than they do in the US and it's all part of like the social security system that we have. Um, having cancer, I actually wanted to do an episode on cancers for the rich because you can't be exposed to sun. That means you've got to buy the most expensive sunscreen out there to like protect you. You have to like, you know, for radiation, I had to wash my hair with a specific shampoo. Like I had to do a pharmacy shop that was like just in care products, like over $500 just to take care of like my skin and my scalp and all those things. And like, I'm lucky that I had a really good job going into this and I have my family who can support me, but the average Spanish person can't afford this just off the bat. So I think we have similar lessons, or at least I can definitely relate to you a lot on on those. Yeah, yeah, and life like life doesn't stop just because you got diagnosed with cancer. Your bills are still yeah. due at the same time; they're yeah. always due. So it's like people don't realize that, like, um, you know, it's an enormous responsibility, like, to save your own life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> to pay for it to save your own life. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. And then I guess with that, is there something that you learned about yourself? Like, for example, for me, I learned I was so impatient. Mm -hmm. Like, there has to be so much patience throughout all this. Really? I I was so impatient. Like, that was my main learning. (sighs) I don't know. I have to think about it. I think the main thing that I've learned about myself is just that, like, I'm a tough bitch. Like, you cannot (laughs) knock me down. I've been through some shit. And I don't care what you say about me or what you think about me because I know myself, I know my character, and I know, like, the person that I am. So I feel like um, I learned that I had an inner confidence. You know, I have a lot of insecurities, but I had this confidence inside me, and, like, cancer brought that confidence out. So I'm just like, oh, you you want to talk shit on me? I don't really care because I just beat cancer in a pandemic. Like, That's you know. amazing. <laughs> I love that. I'm, I'm going to steal that from you as a learning. I learned that I was actually confident. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> I love that we've been through some shit and it it really like I hate when people are like it makes you stronger but it really does like make you a tougher hardened person if you allow it to make it to make you better then it will make you better you know yeah one last question and this go kind of together Mm -hmm. um 
What is something that you wish you knew before all of this that you can kind of give as a tip to people who are kind of now being introduced into this breast cancer world? So many things. Um, number one, like know your family history. A lot of cultures, like they don't really talk about personal things or maybe your family's just not that close and you don't know what's going on. Like ask your parents, like how did my grandfather die? How did my grand, you know, like ask the mm-hmm. tough questions of your family. Um, don't get too attached. If you are diagnosed with cancer, don't get too attached to like one plan. That was a huge mistake that I made is like, you know, my first reconstruction went horribly wrong. I got like a really severe, painful infection. I had to have emergency surgery and I was completely devastated because number one, I had just filled up my expanders. You know, you go like every week and you get them like filled and filled bigger and bigger. And it's like a very expensive uncomfortable process. So not only did I have to completely deflate them, so all that time and money was like for nothing, I was also part of a clinical trial that I was going to be paid to do for a new type of implant. And my infection disqualified me from that trial. So there goes that money and that experience, you know. And I was completely just heartbroken. And I would just advise people like, I think the average number of breast cancer reconstruction surgeries is like two and a half. Like it's very rare that you're just like one and done and everything goes according to plan and everything's great. And you don't get an infection. You don't have complications. You go on with your life and you forget about it. Like that hasn't been my experience, you know? And, um, but like I said, like I just had another reconstruction construction surgery with a new surgeon named Dr. Lloyd Gale. He was phenomenal. He made miracles happen. And now I'm so happy with my body and I'm so happy with how I feel. I feel more like my old self. I feel sexy again. I feel feminine. I feel, you know, it's not just about like having boobs or having like two lumps on your chest. It's really like having your own body autonomy and being able to like be and look how you want, you know? And, um, he, my, my new surgeon has really made that possible for me. So, you know, while I was, you know, over a year ago, like completely heartbroken and devastated by this experience, it, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And I do love the way that I look and the way that I feel now. So, you know, don't get attached to one plan because things will go up and down. It's not like a linear process, you know? I think I'm going to take that learning lesson for myself. Yeah. <laughs> because I am definitely attached to my plant now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely good to know that, of course, things can change. Yeah. And change as they come. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Is there any last few words that you want to share with the community? Well, first of all, thank you for even having me. I'm not like the best interviewee. And this has been a cool learning process for me. And I actually love talking about my experience. I don't really keep anything hidden because I feel like I just want to be like a resource for people, especially like newly diagnosed women. Um, And, you know, I want to thank my mom for putting like our differences aside. Um, Her love language is definitely acts of service. And she did so many acts of service for me after um, this experience through this experience and want to thank Dr. Gale for these new boobs I got going <laughs> on cause I'm loving them. Um, and yeah, I just, um, final thoughts, I guess, um, you know, have hope because, you know, things will get better. Things do get better. And, um, 
reframing my thought process from why me to like, why not me and anyone else, you Mm -hmm. know, that helped me a lot. And, um, yeah, that's it. Just keep, keep living, keep surviving. Thank you, Elle, for joining us for episode three. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. You can find Elle's details in the description, as well as some of the resources that we've mentioned. And please follow at Sick of Being Sick podcast on Instagram to see what's coming up. If you or anyone you know would like to share their story in the podcast, please reach out to me via the email on the episode description or the show description. And um, you're more than welcome to come share your story. If you'd like to write a letter, um, if you don't want to come in, you can also write a letter and I'll read it at the end of the next episode.